something about a, a threesome with a midget and a circus team or something. I'm not I'm not quite sure. So there I was. <laughs> there I was with the football team. <laughs> so I always wonder, is is the gang bang a fear or is it a secret desire? I think <laughs> I think it's a little bit of both. <laughs> Welcome to Nine Cents. <laughs> Nine Cents is a satanic perspective on our modern world, and I am your host, I'm your co-host, uh, Witch Safdig, and I'm here with your regular host, Adam Campbell. It's I great to have you. you. It's, it's April 19th, <laughs> and we have a great show for you this week. Yeah. Hercules, Hercules. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe I know that reference. I do. I have seen that. I've only, honestly, never seen the movie. I just saw the clips with that part in it. And so I always like reference it like a douchebag, never really understanding the full context around it. So that's, that's kind of what I am. I would assume because you had children that you had seen it, but I was, I don't have children, but I was a nanny for a long time, like a decade. So I have seen it. I've seen many a Disney movie. You were doing for a decade? Uh, yeah. 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 From the age of, uh. Thirteen. Yeah, I started about thirteen uh, till twenty-two, twenty-three. Wow. Yeah, so I was. I'm a. I'm a. We don't have to get into it this segment, obviously. But I'm a <laughs> high school dropout who's now doing their doctorate because life is really interesting that way. But when I was dropping out of school, I I went to work as a nanny, and because I was mature and tall and looked old, um, these people hired me to look after their children, which I. In retrospect, I find bizarre that someone hired a 13-year-old <laughs> to look after their children, but I was, I was pretty good at it. And I, was cheap, I have a 13-year-old, so. and I could never imagine him being a nanny. Right, with babies and dogs, and like, yeah. oh, here, keep these small, vulnerable human beings alive. <laughs> we want to live a life like, uh, you know, we're single still. Like, we're just right. fresh couples, so I want you to take the babies... Raise them how you see fit at 13. You must, You. it wasn't that long ago you were a kid, so maybe you still can connect that way. We're going to go drink and do drugs over here. Maybe that's, yeah. I, that's I wish it. that's what the parents were doing. That would have been kind of awesome. But no, they were doing things like, you know, working and providing. and <laughs> Responsible things. You know, regular yeah. things in suburbia. You know. Yeah. Um, okay, well, speaking of uh, kids, a little segue here. 
I have been. I, I, do you like Star Wars at all? Are you? Are you? I do I, very much so. Yeah. So the Star Wars celebration is going right now in uh, Anaheim, and I've just been sort of watching YouTube clips and uh, checking it out. The new trailer for The Force Unleashed hit, and I've turned into the seven-year-old Adam during this entire weekend, <laughs> watching all of these little clips and, and shows and stuff. I got into this weird, uh, um, oh, what is it called? Just uh, chain-watching this cartoon that Disney put out, Star Wars Rebels, with my kids. And really what it is is me watching it and saying, hey, get over here and watch this with me so I don't feel like a retard watching a children's cartoon <laughs> right. myself. And they're like, I don't want to. And they're like, shove us down! I'm your dad! So, you know, we, we lovingly, together... You'll watch it and you'll enjoy it. Yeah. I'm like trying to make all these references to some of the other shows and they're just like, I don't... I, this is... I, it's not me. I don't, I don't like yeah. this. Like shut up and enjoy, it. but it's been amazing. And then you are I, no longer I'm, my child. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I am not your father. <laughs> yes, I'm not your father. That's right. <laughs> and then double um, reference right there, kid. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a geek. Uh, this morning I couldn't. Sleep. I've been having like mad asthma attacks lately, and so I went to the doctor, and he gave me a whole bunch of these crappy pills to take to fix it. And uh, part of the side effect is you can't sleep. And normally I can't sleep anyway, but we've been like busting our ass working out lately. And so I've been sleeping like a baby until these pills. So this morning at three, I was just like wide awake, staring at the ceiling fan. Like, why, why is this happening to me? Like sleep or breathe. It's like a choice I have to make in life, apparently. So I choose breathing just so I can live. But it gave me the opportunity. Like I woke up really early and I watched uh, Return of the Jedi. I saw it in the theater when I was a kid and watching it um, maybe a thousand and twenty-five times. <laughs> you know, just, I've watched it a ton. But watching it this morning was really neat because in the middle of the show, my daughter got up and she sort of came over and crawled on the couch under the blanket with me and was watching it. And we got to the Ewok part and she just lit up. It was like, I mean, I think she's seen it before, but she must not remember. She was a little too young. Yeah. But it was the coolest experience um, reliving this show from my childhood through my child's eyes. I mean, I did it with my son years ago, but she he didn't connect with the sort of, you know, puppety side of it like she did. And it was just really cool. And I, I loved this moment of explaining the complexity of... Darth Vader and Luke and the dark side and the light side of the force and and the twisted relationship and really why Darth Vader ends up saving his son and how underneath it all there was this love of his son that he couldn't just sit here and watch him be killed even by someone as as uh, uh, powerful over his life as the Emperor and it was this really weird insanely deep discussion with a five-year-old <laughs> and she seemed to get it it was really kind of cool right. but, at, but at that moment i do wonder like you're getting all philosophical about these complexities between parent-child relationship and you're like super excited and inside she's just like he walks <laughs> there's a furry animal on screen Yay! <laughs> you know? Sure, I Daddy. think that is sure. exactly what it was too. She was like, "Uh huh, I understand. I understand. When are we uh -huh, gonna see the Ewoks yeah. again? What happened? Yeah, to them? exactly. <laughs> oh, they're fuzzy. Can we have one? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I asked her too. She was like, "I love them. They're so cute. I like how they look. You can see that there's a costume. I see the people underneath it. 
was like, do you want to be an Ewok for for Halloween? She was like, yeah, let's do that. So I'm like, I have to be a Star Wars character now. This is going to be so oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. That Normally I try to do the horror theme, but this time it's going to be all Star Wars. All right. Um. I, I just, I love reliving all this stuff. It's so cool. And, you know, with the new movie coming out and all the information that's being piled on, it's just totally taking me back to my childhood. I'm digging it. Um, I did want to say a couple things here uh, right before I do the show notes. Next week is the Satanic Witch episode. And uh, perhaps a co-host <laughs> that's on right now is going to be in it. Yes, possibly. <laughs> I might be there, yes. It was so, a little bit. It was so weird hearing that episode. Like from my side of it, not having anything to do with it, but right, just I felt women. like a peeping tom. Like I right. really, there was just moments I was like, I kind of feel dirty, and I like it. <laughs> it was, we it often was do like it when we feel dirty. I hear you. Yeah. yeah, it was an interesting episode to to do um, to to partake in. With uh, we'll keep, I guess, some elements of surprise, but there are four witches talking about. Um, witchery in different ways from the satanic yeah. witch and um, it was quite a fascinating to hear the other responses also because we didn't really you know we had talking points beforehand but none of us had conferred on the answers so that was kind of spontaneous in the conversation uh, it was interesting yeah I enjoyed That's, it I really love that aspect of it too because it's it doesn't feel rehearsed it doesn't feel coached up at all it's really pardon me your personal experiences or opinions or ideas and others just riffing on that back and forth. It, it was a yeah. really, really good episode. I'm super crazy excited for everyone listening to to hear it uh, when it comes out next week, which is Valpurgis Noct week. It's going to be mm-hmm. awesome, people. Tune in. Um, I will be dropping that episode on the Monday of next week. So don't miss it. There's going to be a lot of really great content inside of that. So let's uh, let's talk about the show really quick because it is an insanely jam-packed show this week. We're going to start with, of course, Unorthodoxy with Witch Zaftig, episode nine. What are we calling this mm-hmm. one? Uh, this segment, we are going to discuss a little bit about medieval Jewish magic. Yes. So we've discussed uh, magic uh, in the medieval time from different perspectives, usually Christian or the esoteric, but I mm. want to focus on how Jews self-understand their Jewish magic in the medieval period. I'm so excited for this. So I, I love this so much. It's there's a lot of mythologies I think we've created as a human species that are really rich and vibrant. Not some, not so much, but some are just really detailed and and really fun to to read about. At least for me, I, I really like it. You must like it in some way. Uh, yep. <laughs> but uh, there's none, in my opinion, as um, mysterious as Jewish mysticism to me. And mm. it's one of the older ones that are still around and thriving. And so sure, yeah. it's it's really neat. I, I'm, I'm really excited for this. This is going to be kick-ass. Um, we're going to follow that up with Agent Provocateur. Darren is back! Got an Woo-hoo. Agent Provocateur. Episode 21 is coming out. I uh, don't know much about it yet, but I know it's uh, going to be a good one because Darren never disappoints. Uh, following that, Milton Eroticism, episode 23, Outrageous Claims from a Dull Mind. These are some of the excerpts <laughs> of his new book, uh, same name, Milton Eroticism, now available if you go to MiltonEroticism.com for purchase. And we ran a contest, and we have a winner. The contest winner will be announced at the end of that segment. So tune in. I'm really excited for this uh, contest winner. I'm a fan. And, of course, we close this... We, ah, blah, blah. We close this blah, blah, 
episode down uh, with Old Nick's Peep Show. I talked to Marilyn Mansfield one-on-one. A really great discussion. Episode 19 of this, we're talking about photo submission suggestions. So a lot of really nice tips and tricks for you ladies who may want to submit photos to Old Nick Magazine. And may I just say, please do. (laughs) I love this magazine, so let's keep it going with these beautiful, beautiful women. And that's going to do it for the show. So should we uh, just dive right into unorthodoxy? Let's do it. Yes. Fascination is a binding which comes from the spirit of the witch through the eyes of him that is bewitched. Entering fascination is a binding. Now the instrument of fascination is the spirit, namely a certain pure, lucid, subtle vapor generated of the pure blood by the heat of the heart. Welcome to Unorthodoxy with Witch Zabdick. This is episode episode nine, and we are going to be talking this particular segment about medieval Jewish magic. Now, uh, what that means is that I want to discuss a little bit about how Jews themselves understood what magic was and how they self-understand uh, this practice of this thing that maybe we're, misna- we're misnaming as magic and maybe not. It's sort of a loose term. But uh, first, before we get into that, it's important to note that the, the context in which medieval Jews are living and practicing their religious uh, slash magical practices. Uh, within the context, so especially retroactively, we tend to look back and draw this distinction between religion with a capital R and popular practice, you know, what the peasants are doing kind of thing. And um, there's newer scholarship ch- tends to try to challenge that distinction and say, well, we're only sort of looking at what is popularly considered legitimate by the elites and ignoring all the stuff as superstitious among the population that, you know, we shouldn't be creating these distinctions. If people are doing it, it's of legitimate value to, to study. Uh, and even though distinctions are uh, necessary, but, um, it's also important to note that even within the medieval period, they did understand something as legitimately religious, like high society, the aristocrats, the theologians who are uh, creating their religious discourse, and what people are doing in the everyday. So even they understood that there is this sort of high and low culture. Um, as much as we challenge what high and low means, the concept exists. There, um, the Jews within the medieval period have a very precarious social position. So they are living in ghettos, and by that it means that here's a relegated area, only Jews are allowed to live here. Um, they're not necessarily allowed to um, live in other parts of European cities. So most of the time, um, they're relatively isolated. However, we shouldn't assume that they're entirely cut off between um, what's happening within these Jewish social gatherings and the um, larger Christian society. There is something that uh, scholars like to call discursive transfer, a very pretentious term, which essentially means that there is interaction. People are going to the market. Um, women are washing their clothes together around the at the, the lake or the river. Um, people are doing business. People have shops. So they're not... Totally isolated in the sense that no one ever goes in there. But it, the enveloping culture, though, understood Jews as somehow affiliated with Satan. 
They're the ones that killed Jesus Christ. <laughs> and uh, in the Christian worldview, in the enveloping Christian worldview of European society, magic came to be understood as, um, the source of magic came to be understood as from Satan. So Jews and their association, they sort of have this affiliation with Satan within the Christian society. So there's a suspicion with Jews and their magical, suspicious practices and whatever they do. Um, but with internally, that's not quite how it was understood. So this is Christian propaganda about Jews. Uh, Jews get scapegoated. There's violence that pop up, usually very uh, brief and bloody. Um, one particular ru ruler might have uh, allowed Jews to live peacefully, but then their son inherits the land and decides, uh, I want this particular land for my own crops and fields, and then exiles them and murders them or um, does all kinds of things. Like This is sort of a, a regular thing. Their, their position is precarious depending on the ruler. They don't have a lot of um, autonomy in what's happening, and they're always contingent on what that particular ruler thinks of them. So they understand this, and I think this contributes to their secret magical practice, in a sense, um, their mysticism. Um, they are, the Jews essentially, are um, more literate than their Christian counterparts. And this is important because they're also more literate, not just in the language of the time, but in ancient languages. So Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. Um, the religious practitioners, the rabbis, um, would be would be learned in these languages. The males, not not the females. Although we tend to assume that if females are living in a household of a whole bunch of men who are reading and writing and going to school, that they have learned something. But officially, they're not allowed to have access to these texts. Um, but there is always an assumption that they're more literate than their Christian counterparts. The rabbis certainly were, because it's part of being Jewish to know the text. <clears throat> so despite this propaganda uh, against the Jews uh, outside, they did have a magical practice. And their magical practice was influenced by these older texts from the ancient world that were in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic. And because it was inaccessible to most people um, outside of the Jewish rabbis, it enhanced this idea that they had specialized knowledge, that Jewish magicians could, could somehow tap into ancient mystical practice. Um, it wasn't, even though they have this association outside um, as being affiliated with Satan, Jewish magical practitioners considered all magic as uh, coming from God. The supremacy was God. Miracles and magic were allowed to happen because that you had um, a special understanding, that you were particularly learned or particularly skilled in being able to practice uh, magic. There was this interesting combination of God, science, and nature, and manipulation thereof. So God had... Uh, left secrets within the text that skilled practitioners could then reveal via uh, divination or uh, different types of uh, number manipulation, numerology. Within the sciences, astrology would have been a science, medicine, alchemy, um, a skilled magician could then read the stars and um, understand different things, make uh, divinations, predictions, uh, good and bad omens. And so was uh, nature. So 
being able to look at nature and read the signs. So um, a dog howls at a particular time at night <laughs> and interpreting that as a good or a bad omen. So these are the kinds of things that nowadays we might sort of dismiss. But at the time, someone who was good at um, reading, like if, in modern day times, this idea of a psychic who sits down at a booth and reads the person in front of them and essentially kind of tells them what they want to hear. <laughs> it wouldn't be terribly different for a medieval Jewish magician to do similar things, but in line with whatever is uh, divine and good or bad omens is always in the service to God, more or less, <laughs> because they did have an interesting kind of... Um, it wasn't necessarily opening the gates of evil, but as I like ma the, the practice of magic. But as I said, the outside culture did consider them anytime any kind of magical practice as somehow evil in nature. And let me sort of explain, I'll give you one example of how this has a, a duality to it. So, if Satan in, in the Christian worldview, Satan is the ultimate source of magic, and um, illness is caused by spells and curses then uh, magic is also the cure. So a skilled Jewish magician often were called upon, uh, sometimes by, outside, by the outside uh, aristocratic culture even, to treat uh, an illness. Because then it could have been, um, then it allowed them to have space as a legitimate physician. Because this is what the physician at the time, medicine is... Bad magic, curses, spells, and anybody who could manipulate that or counteract that with other spells and curses, there was the medical practitioner. Um, uh, this is also another precarious thing, though, because if they didn't cure the ruler, <laughs> then um, they could have um, violence uh, against them, which happened often. I wanted to give you uh, a little bit of a, an example, though, of how they considered um, the dead, so necromancy. Within Jewish uh, lore, um, certainly when you die, there's sort of an eternal soul that is waiting eternally for the Messiah to come and, you know, resurrect everyone, not just the Jews, but everyone. But there was also this notion that there was part of your soul or a different type of soul, um, they have Hebrew words for it, that somehow resided close to where this person lived, in the house, among family members, but it was tethered to their grave. So um, necromancy, uh, the idea of trying to entreat the deceased to help people, to help the living and to their favor, um, was certainly practiced. So you could visit the grave of a deceased, and if you were skilled, you could um, try to um, call upon their tethered soul to help you, or even curse somebody. It depends. There is a uh, text about medieval Jews uh, talking about how some of these tethered souls um, complained about being mistreated. Oh, you don't come to my grave. You don't keep it clean. You buried me improperly. Um, and usually they communicated these things through dreams, uh, sometimes visions. Uh, but it, it was considered legitimate enough that sometimes they unearthed a dead body, rewrap them in a shroud in clothing that uh, satisfied the deceased and then rebury them. Like, oh, he, he visited me, told me he wasn't happy. We got to do this to fix it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, it's, uh, and I, I bring that up just because it's a, it's a real thing. Yeah. Like if you're, the, dreams are just like the natural world. Like if a dog barks at 
Midnight and the Howling Moon, it could be considered a good or bad omen. Uh, dreams are part of this information, this flow of information between the living and the dead, the deceased. There's even a, a text about pacts between two particular rabbis who say, okay, if one of us, whichever one of us dies first, has to come back to the other and, and tell us about, tell the other about the world, <laughs> the, you know, the afterlife, like what's happening. And if there's a divine plan and that we could maybe make, um, uh, make plans in accordance with some of our ultimate destiny, you know, because we don't know our future, but obviously if you're dead, you can, you have different access to different types of knowledge and likely know a bit more. Can you go and eavesdrop <laughs> <laughs> on the ultimate plan and then come back and tell us so we can prepare? And so they, they have these incidents of, of treaties and that when one did die, then the other uh, was visited. So they don't quite consider that um, necromancy because the person didn't summon them. Mm -hmm. But it's still this idea that um, communicating with the dead is not this foreign or bizarre concept. It actually happens all the time. The dead are still living with you. They are tethered not only to their graves um, in this sort of almost physical way, but they are interacting with their uh, loved ones. They, their presence is felt and choices are made in accordance with this idea that they're still there at least uh, and can offer an opinion on what new choices. Oh, I don't like my daughter's new husband <laughs> or betrothed. You have, to, you have to prevent this marriage from happening. Like, these, these kinds of ideas. Wow. I wanted to give you um, one particular uh, example. Um, this is a, a method that was deemed acceptable to uh, invoke the dead by means of angelic names. Stand before the grave and recite the names of the angels of the fifth camp of the first firmament and hold in your hand a mixture of oil and honey in a new glass bowl and say, I conjure you, spirit of the grave, Nahina, who rests on the grave upon the bones of the dead, that you accept this offering from my hand and do my bidding. Concept being that hopefully uh, this deceased then is summoned and can act in accordance with the, the living's will. Uh, medieval Jews had a whole bunch of different types of practices from uh, necromancy to spells to healing to divination um, and even magical amulets, you know, wearing different things with script because the written word, uh, because it was a rare skill, was considered something very magical, especially if most people cannot read it, although within Jewish communities they could, but there are even certain words um, were considered to hold so much power the way that they don't ever write the name of God. They just write uh, Yahweh, mm -hmm. um, because it's considered to have, you know, special uh, properties. So uh, the reason I wanted to bring up how Jews think of magic is because when they're framing things in terms of if a particular person is skilled and is able to call upon the dead or heal somebody or uh, be tethered to someone who's deceased or be visited by, they're not always understanding it in terms of this is evil. Although it can be evil and it can be used for evil, ultimately it's not something that the source of which is Satan. This differs drastically from the Christian worldview, which viewed most magical practice and manipulation of the natural world as a very much an evil thing because um, miracle was certainly come from God, but magic was, was bad. And especially if the power was autonomous. So if it wasn't a cleric exercising this power, they didn't necessarily want regular people <laughs> to be considered themselves powerful 
or manipula manipulators of the natural world because it contradicts how they understand the power of God. So these two discourses are happening at the same time and they are transferring to each other. They're framing them different ways, but um, there's certainly a lot of, of uh, well, there's certainly a lot of in information flowing from Jewish communities to Christian communities and Christian communities to Jewish communities, but in a way that most scholars uh, haven't really looked at because they tend to divide it. Here's Christian history, here's Jewish history. Uh, it's really only in the modern time that we've started to look at these things and say, hey, look, even though we tend to divide these things, there's this information flowing back and forth all the time, and they're actually changing each other. So let's look at, at that transfer uh, as important. This is amazing to me. I, I, <laughs> I, absolutely, I love this so goddamn much. So I have a number of questions here. Um, first, if... The, Jew, the Jews even saw necromancy as from God. Is that right? Well, yeah, because if a soul, I mean, if a soul was tethered in the sense that um, if a soul could be called upon, clearly it was God's will. Uh, if you are a bad person and you call upon the soul and that soul does bad, or you call upon the soul to do bad things, then that was evil. That You know, that was mm -hmm. horrible. Or if you displease that soul, like you disturb them or you ask them something that was unreasonable, um, they could then curse you, curse you and your family. Damn. But they don't have this strong notion of Satan, like mm. Jews never did. They understand that Christians took their notion of Satan and went hog wild with it. Yeah, they just went yes, crazy. <laughs> but because they are understood as suspicious and they are often scapegoats for evil and they are understood as affiliated with Satan, in their religious practice, they almost completely obliterated this notion, like this idea of this grand opposer of God. I grew up uh, with Mormon parents, and so I've always seen the soul in a similar way where you're uh, – I used to, actually um, – where it's a bit tethered to the corporal world uh, up until the point of uh, – the way that I understood it as a little kid, uh, you know, this, this calling. So it wasn't like you died and your soul would ascend to whatever. It was very much you died and it was almost like there's a bus. And so there's a certain time that they collect up all the dead <laughs> and then they together all sort of journey on. Um, I had a friend in high school commit suicide and I had these, I, it, it took me years to get over and I had these recurring dreams of him visiting me because he was still waiting on that trip to, to occur. And, you know, we would have these long conversations in dreams where he said, you know, you can come with me. I, I've learned a way that you could die in your sleep. Essentially, you know, we would set up you to be killed in your sleep and then you could come with me on this, this trip, you know, and you only have a certain amount of time because it's in, so this is my, I was in retrospect, I was dealing with his death in a dark way a psychologically dark and kind of disturbing way. Um, I'm kind of prone that way anyway. But so hearing this description of how the Jews see the soul and being able to call upon it or interact with it, it's like a noise. Like, I understand that it's not real, but the yeah. idea of it seems really natural because of the way I was raised. Um, sure. So I connect that so much. And I just, I love that idea of necromancy. I came from, to Satanism from an occult side of things. And so I love that type of um, uh, fanciful thinking, I suppose you could call it. 
Uh, and Mormons have a very elaborate notion of the afterlife. Like there's yeah. different types of hell, different, I mean, not quite hell, but I mean, there's different types of different places to go. Yeah. There's an entire hierarchy. There's an entire notion that, of deceased souls and how they move through the different celestial planes. I know enough to know that it's not just dead, go to heaven. There's an entire social <laughs> heavenly hierarchy up there that you <laughs> have to navigate. <laughs> so, uh, the Jews, I think, viewed it uh, more as they had actually different words. So in English, we don't really have these words for it. So there was a notion of a soul that, sure, could go to heaven or at least goes to that place that sort of waits for um, waits for the resurrections. Mm -hmm. But they have different essences of your soul that get, you know, and they have different words for to describe this. Ah, oh, here's a spirit. It's not your full soul, but there's an element here that's still here, obviously, because they're still coming to us in dreams, so clearly there is an element that's still there. Um, so yeah, I think it is natural no matter what, so I don't, um, you know, believe in a <laughs> heaven or a soul yeah. or a spirit either, but I have had uh, my, my beloved pets that have died when I feel um, a little lonely or even not, just like sometimes when I go to bed, I just lie down and picture them curling up with me. Like, totally. Like, this is, like, comforting to me if I'm having trouble sleeping. Uh, my little, the love of my life, this little black cat that I had, and she was kind of ill. But when she died, she died in my lap. And so I always have this idea that her, her feline soul is attached to me. I understand that this is, as you say, this fanciful nation, the notion, and I don't care. I recognize she likely doesn't have a soul if I don't believe in human souls. I find the idea comforting and I go with it and I feel no conflict with it because it is incredibly comforting to me. So I think it's kind of human nature to want to be able to somehow have access to people that you cared about in some way. Yeah. I, I also think, you know, going back to your discussion, it's really fascinating the the difference, the way that Jews see magic and Christians see magic, especially mm -hmm. when Christians are a derivative of Jews, right? Yes, and I think that that's that's part of the problem. So, in the the Christian notion has often sort of dismissed or devalued the idea that Jesus was a Jew, very much a Jew, so much of a Jew that uh, it was important for him to be in this place that was dangerous for him to be at Passover. So, mm -hmm. uh, so Easter and Passover at the same time, <laughs> and that's because um, he thought, I have to be there. This is an important, uh, you know, religious holiday. He gets murdered. Whatever, whatever facts or non-facts are there, um, right. like in terms of the historical Jesus, I'm less concerned. But I do think it's in important that even in Jesus' own mythology, his Jewishness is kind of downplayed. And there's always, this, especially in the medieval period, when Jews are being scapegoated for a lot of things, the reasoning was always, well, they killed Christ. Well, it wasn't Jews going and killing a Christian. It was Jews killing a troublesome Jew. He was mm -hmm. creating problems. <laughs> you know, he's this young upstart uh, gaining followers and people didn't like that. So um, uh, I think that part of this separation between how Jews view magic and Christians view magic is part of an anti-Semitic sentiment. Well, if Jews are considering magical practice as from God and we want to denounce Jews, then we're also going to denounce magic. Hmm. Like we're going to, I think they sort of inform each other in that, in that way also. It's not just the notion of, um, 
Christians being the, the elite, it's also their sort of scapegoat. And they can sort of throw it all in the same bucket, right? Uh, Jews, pagans, homosexuals, women, whatever. They can. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Sounds like a party, actually. <laughs> if there are problems, I know, exactly. <laughs> like, who wouldn't want to be there? So, uh, But anything that's considered a threat or a problem gets sort of brushed under the same, you know, broad conceptual framework of, uh, therefore, evil, problematic, needs mm-hmm. to be dealt with and denounced. So is that idea of evil, I mean, the, the way I understand uh, the Christian view of evil is um, the, it, it derives from Satan. Satan is a part of all of us, and he is what makes us evil. And any act that's against uh, you know, their, their version of a god is thus evil. Do, do the Jews see evil the same way? Because if, if they interact with the dead, and the only way they see it as a bad thing or not from God is when it's for an evil end, how do they define that evil end? Is it different? Um, I think just like even Christian theologians, they discuss evil in different terms. You know, some, uh, although I think your characterization is correct in broad terms, right. there are different theologians that have had more nuanced understandings of evil. But if you're going to think of broad terms, I think that I think I, I, I may have to get back to you after I confer with some of my colleagues. But my understanding is that Jews consider evil as the absence of God. So it's not some separate entity, but falling away from tradition, falling away from God. This is their notion of evil, like falling away from what they consider to be um, pious and religious practice. So they have sort of a uh, they don't consider even nowadays the Holocaust as something that Satan did because it doesn't figure prominently in their worldview. But they do consider it as God was absent. God was absent in the actions of these people. Even God was absent a little bit in his protection of us. Even if it's heretical almost to say that, there is a sort of sentiment of we have suffered and we continue to suffer and mm-hmm. God was absent. So that's how they kind of philosophically the source of evil yeah what has kept the authenticity of this way of thought with jews for thousands of years you know christianity went through a mass reformation um and it's divided into tons of different um i don't know sects or versions of itself do the jews do the same thing are are there a whole bunch of different versions of uh, Judaism? Absolutely. Uh, there may not be as many, mm-hmm. um, but that's because there's, that's the sort of nature of Judaism itself. It has um, a little bit less wiggle room. In terms of official groups, I should say. So there's the Hasidim, those that you would see walking around with the hats and the curled, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, often in black. Um, and so, and they tend to be very, in their own communities, they live in major cities, but they tend to sort of uh, live in their own communities and only interact with people of other Hasidim communities. Um, and then there's sort of uh, reformist Jews and cultural Jews, which means that there's some that identify with the community factor of being Jewish, um, the notion of family and history and legacy, but don't believe in God um, at all. But recognize that Judaism entails um, at its core, a very strong communal component. It, it's part of how they self-understand their, themselves religiously and ethnically. Because what's unique about Judaism is that it's also an ethnicity. 
Um, mm. And um, even those who convert, once they convert, they are considered uh, Jewish. Well, the mother, essentially. So if a, a mother, even if she's a convert, if she has children, they are automatically considered Jewish. So these two things coincide in the way that a Christianity doesn't, doesn't consider themselves ethnically Christian. Yeah. So there's a, um, uh, some unique factors about Judaism that has allowed it, I wouldn't say to remain homogenized, because it absolutely is not. There's a lot of different varieties in Judaism. But there's certain core elements that can that have maintained because of their high um, notion to community, their high commitment to um, ritual, which is extremely important within Judaism. And even among secular Jews, the rituals of holidays sometimes become extremely important. And then the ethnic factor. And it's, it's, it's bolstered by the fact that they have been scapegoated a lot. So... Whether you agree with contemporary Israel-Palestine politics or not, I mean, that's a whole separate entity, <laughs> uh, which I won't get into. But mm -hmm. the fact that they have been ostracized and persecuted has actually helped their community maintain in, in that bizarre way that it would. If they're under duress, then one of the ways to react to that duress is to stand together as much as possible. Wow. Well, I know we can go on for hours, but uh, we're going to have yeah. to stop the discussion here. Um, one last uh, quick question. Do all the different sects of uh, Jews see magic that same way that you've uh, discussed here? Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Not at all. Okay. Well, cool. Yeah, in the, within the mystical elements, so certain Jews are he still heavily mystical and practice Kabbalah and those types of things. Uh, but there's other Jews that are just less concerned with those, those kinds mm -hmm. of things. So it, there's certainly some disagreement. No one um, denies that you can have mystical communion with God. There's lots of disagreement about who has access to this kind of knowledge <laughs> and who's skilled and who's allowed to practice these very specialized types of experiences. Men? Yes, usually. Usually <laughs> that's how it goes, yeah. <laughs> but there are reformists Jews that would say, well, God actually, if you look at the old Hebrew text, says that God has an inherently feminine aspect. And there is, in the Hebrew text, there is this description. So there's lots of um, newer Jews groups that say, uh, as females, we are inherently more mystical and connected to God, and they have practices surrounding that. So there's always reinterpretation and, and reinterpretation again and again, mm -hmm. reframing according to uh, different people's own agendas. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that was fantastic. Where can, uh, where can the good people submit their own questions and content for you? They can um, email me at zaftigworks, all small letters, all one word, at gmail.com or the Facebook, the Facebook page, An Orthodoxy with Witch Zaftig, um, or the, through, via the blog, which is also unorthodoxyblog.wordpress.com. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Witch Zaftig. This was amazing. I am not a liberal nor a conservative. I am not a Democrat, nor a Republican. I am not a Socialist, nor a Capitalist. I am not an Authoritarian, and I'm definitely not fighting for your cause. I belong to no party, I support no politicians, I am loyal to no state, and your cause celebra means nothing to me. I am Darren Deicide, Agent Provocateur. Welcome back to Agent Provocateur! 
Oh, you are too kind, people. Too kind. Oh, stop it. You flatter me. You flatter me way too much. I know you didn't miss me this match. In fact, I get the sense that you tried to shake me, and it didn't work. I had to go out. I had to go out and give the masses the blues. Apparently something that I'm good at in more ways than one. So, I hate to have left you, and there is a lot of catching up that we need to do. We've got some catching up to do. But let's cut straight through the bullshit. I left right in the midst of a lot of fun, and I hate to leave a good firefight. Still, I apologize profusely. Since we last talked, heads were rolling, figuratively and literally. One thing you can never take away from the human species is how creative it can be when killing things. Oh yeah, you have to give your hat off to the Islamic State for one thing. Dramatic tension! When the U.S. kills someone, it's a grainy black-and-white thermal camera. If the government and press slip up and you get to see it. Maybe it'll be a building exploding in the distance. Maybe. But when the Islamic State kills someone, boy, you get the Blu-ray version. Burning, flesh dripping from live immolated bodies, slow motion screams with 80s-style reverb. It's like watching a real-life version of a Mortal Kombat fatality. Those people know how to do an execution. I have a wish list, Islamic State. Keep your eye on the mail. And while one Frankenstein of the Middle East really comes into its own, the next one begins to be worked on in Yemen. Whee! Let's repeat history! The American Middle East roller coaster. That's what I call it. The slow destruction of American drone strikes have helped given rise to a new rebellion right on our favorite fundamentalist monarchies, Saudi Arabia's doorstep. The massive reorganization of the Middle East continues. And where we are finding oil less profitable, we're finding weapons quite lucrative. Shipping off crates of bombs to a fundamentalist Islamic state. What could possibly go wrong? So while it may seem that history is repeating itself in one respect, it seems to be doing less so in another. Ties between our crazy Zionist friends and Israel have been a bit strained, and a slight shift in diplomatic stance is underway. Maybe it's the overwhelming global opinion? Maybe Obama tuned into an episode or two of Agent Provocateur. I heard he really liked the shit episode. Maybe it was the way Israel's attempt to one-up America's George Bush Jr., Benjamin Netanyahu, or as I like to call him, Old Ben-Yahu decided he was going to run his own agenda through the front doors of Congress with an ideological Mack truck in mid-negotiations with the once-sanctioned, unsanctioned nuclear power of Iran. That guy is like a Jewish John McCain, but obviously holding up much better physically. For once, though, his insistent need to lead a rogue state to the cry of, THE END IS NIGH! seems to finally being looked at for the chicken-little insanity and shit-disturbing that it is. Of course, none of this addresses the fact that Israel is a highly aggressive, unilateral, nuclear-armed, and now because of declassification, we know this for a fact, state that in the region continues, unlike Iran, to refuse to sign the Non-Proliferation Treaty. We have very interesting views on perceiving threats over here in the United States. 
Throw that in with our interesting views on human evolution, abortion, climate change, and the ethics of shit-talking over social media amongst sports journalists. So yes, some things have become more creative in that department, but in other ways they obviously aren't. America continues to play its games racially, religiously, and foreign policy Police brutality continues to be the scarecrow people like throwing their racial stones at. Hey, I got news for you, America. Police can shoot me and not go to jail for it also. The fact that I'm about ten shades lighter than some of you doesn't make that much of a difference. Nonetheless, more and more cases are being caught on camera of police using American citizens for target practice, an interesting, perhaps unforeseen, rub to our new surveillance state. Racialist leaders continue to come forward to exploit them for media attention, which mass media gladly obliges. God forbid we put the onus on the state. So, I welcome all the cameras creating all the accountability in that department, but I have no regard for the level of debate surrounding these incidents. Every single one of these cardboard cutouts the media throws in front of the cameras are blood-sucking, bypass surgery-having, church-going, wind-tunnel-tested hair-dude vultures feeding off bullet-riddled carcasses, each and every one of them. Religiously, we have some new homegrown hysteria, new bills like the Religious Freedom Act. Personally, I could give less than a shit about this. If Indiana wants to use religion as a pretense to deny some people business, fuck them. Let them have it. See if I care. I just got back from a tour of Indiana, and let me tell you, there is no love loss. That state's head is so far up Jesus' ass that they're coming out of his mouth. But Darren, what about gay people who happen to live in Indiana? To which I say, get the fuck out of there! What are you thinking? That state is no life for a homosexual, let alone a heterosexual. Since we last spoke, also, Ukraine has become another staging ground for more Cold War-style rhetoric. It's like going back to the 80s, but without the cocaine and reverb synth snare. All of this is bringing us back to the old school, when Russian WWF wrestlers sang Soviet anthems to throngs of booing rednecks. And yet, strangely, Cuba has finally removed itself from the equation stood its ground, and finds itself normalizing relationships with their bigger brother next door. Whoops! Sorry about those past 50 years. Nonetheless, the U.S. and Russian governments continue to play the old song and dance. While I was gone, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists moved the doomsday clock two minutes closer to midnight. If you're wondering what that is, I'll just go ahead and quote their website. The Doomsday Clock is an internationally recognized design that conveys how close we are to destroying our civilization with dangerous technologies of our own making. First and foremost among these are nuclear weapons. But the dangers include climate-changing technologies, emerging biotechnologies, and cyber technology that can inflict irrevocable harm, whether by intention, miscalculation, or by accident, to our way of life and to the planet. There really isn't a joke there. I just enjoy the schadenfreude of human decline. And perhaps that is the perfect way to reintroduce myself back into the fold of nine cents and this one man's exploration of pure, unadulterated cynicism in human society. I promise not to leave you again, baby. Let's jump straight back into this next week. I don't necessarily have a title yet, but we're going to... 
stewed the new Cold War, enemies, allies, and all the weirdos in between. Until then, keep that intellectual guard up, fellow skeptics, for you are the last line of mental defense against the insanity of the human species. Don't forget to jump into the fray in my newswire at facebook.com slash agentprovocateur on 9 cents. It'll give you a beeline into independent and international media so that you can look at the world perhaps from a different point of view from the herd. Take care. It's good to be back. I'll talk to you next week. The top hated and the low browed. With a scarlet passion and valid gospel, I say to you, Thou in sick style will molten altars. Be not of love, but of lust. Into one of those full ears of bellies full. Expand your gentle rebellion to vindicate the shrew. Let thy brothel be revelation. Then thy moans are divine wisdom. There's no salvation in the whole's religion. Our dogma is their kink. With legs spread, with flesh mounted, we point out to our accusers, a slut alone is no slut at all. This I say to you, my fellow eroticists, my hands-on warriors. It doesn't matter who bends over. In the end, we are all degraded. Welcome to Militant Eroticism. This is episode 23, uh, Outrageous Claims from a Dull Mind. Well, if, if, just just a few of them, because um, I want you to uh, read the book. So, that's, you know, I can't, I can't spoil things like I do with my anus, but, you know, here we go. <laughs> so the book is out. The book is out now. Woo! Oh, my God, diddly doodly. That's crazy. <laughs> so there's a there's a section of the book there's there's a section of LeVay's books that I always liked and it was um there was a those kind of random musings he would have mm-hmm. at, at the end of the Devil's Notebook and Satan Speaks and no one else has done that and uh, I'm like you know what that's that's something I miss yeah just just random things put randomly at the end of the book those are those are fun so I did that too. <laughs> Because, you know, I'm awesome. Because you're cool like that. Because I'm cool like that. right. You know, the blonde guy following the bald man. It's uh, (laughs) the way it works. So these are uh, random thoughts and musings that my friends call uh, adenisms. But I call them outrageous things from adult mind. Or, you know, what I post on Facebook when I'm drunk, bored, and lonely. (laughs) Here we go. I wonder if anyone has explored the relations or the relationship between haunted houses and fetishes. Fetishes are taboo. Our fascination with the taboo is a result of our fascination with the forbidden. What is forbidden is unknown, and what is unknown is scary. 
that we are afraid, we are interested. In fact, much like our enjoyment of roller coasters and haunted houses. We are interested precisely because we're afraid. I want to put it in the out of the norm should be tattooed on men's penises. Would it be so far-fetched to say there are people who enjoy the horrors of boredom, who wish to sleep with those monsters, and who crave those zombies between their leaking legs? <laughs> haunted houses and <laughs> haunted houses in and of themselves are a certain type of taboo. Those nightmares that wreak havoc in the back of the skull, those uh, those things that creep just beyond our dimming light. Oh, the factual. When, some st- uh, when uh, one starts to ponder the idea, or maybe I'm just one of those people who lick their lips when they see a blood-drenched werewolf howling through the moors. Sorry, I got really turned on for a minute. <laughs> Come on, man. A bloody werewolf? You know. I, I <laughs> dug the uh, werewolf women of the SS little bit that Zombie put out. I thought that was pretty sexy, yours. so it's a little it's a little bit close to yours. No, man, it's got titties. You're just fucking <laughs> <laughs> weirdo. I I Not dig that. Not my kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice. I I really dig that uh, that comparison. I know a lot of people who are crazy into Halloween. And it does become like a fetish. Like it's it's just this this thing that attracts you and you can easily pass that level of sexualization versus just uh, passion. You know, like liking it a little too much. <laughs> yeah, so that's cool. it's, like a, it's a big Halloween role play. And I end this part by saying I'm, I'm sure it'd be popular if a porno came out showing precisely what I predicted is already popular. And that is the very essence of sexual hypocrisy. Trust me, I would know. Because, you know, I like werewolves uh, raping bitches. Especially when they're me. (laughs) You're the bitch or you're the werewolf? I'm the bitch, man. (laughs) I'm not putting on all that shit. Just lie me on a bed naked. Let someone else wear that fucking shit. Take me, teen wolf. Um, no. Mm-mm. No, I want that Dracula werewolf. That's hot. I don't think I've ever seen the Dracula werewolf. You're weird. You're weird. That's, <laughs> I'm posting shit on your Facebook. Do it. I will. All right. Stop me. <laughs> so what's another uh, one of these, uh, these isms? Another one of... Another one of these adenisms is um, the truly perverted things are the things that everyone does. The most unsettling things are the things everybody does privately. It seems to be far easier to rest comfortably when you think you're the only monster in the world. Because if everyone is a monster, things look much more bleak. And then we have... I'm sorry? I like that. Uh, Yeah, it seems... uh, you know, when you sit people down and they're like, oh no, I couldn't tell anybody. I couldn't tell anyone. I'd be a terrible human being with the listen, man. You're all really pretty fucking awful. So I'm pretty <laughs> sure it's okay. No, no. My God, what would people think of me? I'm a monster. I'm terrible. I like this, that, and the other thing. Yeah, no, but that guy, see that guy over there? He, he likes this, that, and the other thing too. And he's, um, yeah, he's pretty bad. <laughs> it is weird because like 
when you in the public sphere you say you don't want to let people know about your little fetishes your little quirks because you're afraid of what they would think of you but then on the other hand just like you're speaking to here if everyone has this then it's not a quirk anymore so maybe it's just your way of protecting the uh excitement of it by not divulging it to the masses you know, I never thought of it that way. That's that's a good point. You know, holding on to those uh, little tidbits about yourself or special little inside peaks. Yeah. But I, I always um, I always took it as a as a kind of embarrassment. Maybe because I'm so forthcoming with with my um with my tastes mm-hmm. and I'm private about other things. But. Uh, so I, I always looked at it as, oh, you're not saying that you must be embarrassed. Right. So maybe it's a little bit of a projection thing there. But but it seems to be a part of it. You know, if, if they look around and see that everybody is sick and perverse and twisted and do terrible, terrible things to each other. I think that would sound really depressing to uh, the average person. Like, oh, my God, there is no hope for us. Like, we're... <laughs> We're all fucked up, damn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How could we ever do anything productive as a society if we're all into this crazy, insane shit? Right. How how am I supposed to keep a job if I'm dressed like a werewolf all the time, raping a dude? <laughs> it's crazy. Got to all find right, a way right. to monetize that. A video cam. Sell sell it <laughs> online. Um, yeah. Okay. So, what's another one of these? Oh, just just so the audience knows we're going to be announcing something here, right? Oh my God! Yeah, I totally forgot. We have a contest winner. Yay! Contest winner. Okay. So let's not announce it yet. Let's do one or two more of these um, adenisms, and then uh, then we can then we can release it. Now, uh, once again, for everyone listening, all of these are actually in Aden's new book, Militant Eroticism, out now. Go to militanteroticism.com to learn more about purchasing and about the, the collection of essays. But uh, it's definitely worth looking into. It is a fantastic collection, and uh, one lucky person is about to be announced uh, gets a free personalized copy. So thank you for contributing, uh, everyone. Let's do, uh, let's do one or two more of these, man. It's uh, the book's so good that when I gave my dad the test copy to flip over, mm-hmm. his face turned red and he had to walk away. <laughs> it was pretty good. He said it's because he didn't understand it. I looked at him like, no, I think you understand it fairly well. <laughs> All right, let's go with a few more of these. Now, th- this one, a little in- inside peek, this one my editor gave me a lot of shit about. We were, we were debating it because he loves philosophy as much as I do. Mm-hmm. That was fun. Finally, I told him to shut the fuck up and let's go into the book. So, <laughs> <laughs> mine, it's my book. You can't put it in. No, you can't stop me. <laughs> I do what I want. That's right. I run with 12 gangs and we only commit hate crimes. <laughs> South Park reference. Okay. So, <laughs> you cannot demand affection without the result being insincere. If they claim they find it hard to express emotion, then let them face the hard consequences. Value is worth expressing with valuable emotions. Signs of love are not to be taken lightly. Your heart, or signs of your caring and loyalty, uh, is far more valuable than your holes. 
one mistake for a hole may get you sick, and a mistake of your heart can ruin you emotionally, intellectually, physically, and financially. But the, consequ uh, the consequences of an act does not determine its value. Making demands requires insincerity of the one you're demanding something from. Hell like, yeah. Uh, yeah, for me, it's if, if I'm dating, I can't demand anything from someone. If I, if I tell you what to do, this, this usually only applies to people I'm dating or close friends. If I tell you what to do, that, to, to me, that wasn't, you're not doing it sincerely, you're doing it because I told you to. Yeah. So I can't judge you accurately, or as accurate, I, or I can't get in your head as, and judge you as accurately as I would want to. It's best just to, this, these are my expectations, do what you will. That way I can I, judge you. <laughs> yeah, I, re I really like that, actually. It, it's one of those tough things because without the communication, you know, a lot of people aren't going to know that they need to do it. But there is something to be said about, you know, making the move without being asked to make the move or doing that one weird thing without being asked to do it that makes it so much more worthwhile. It, I mean, often you know, I'll find myself in a position where I don't want to ask for it. And so I just go without because I, I'm hoping that they're going to be, you know, spontaneous enough to do what they know historically that I like. But if they're not going to do it, then I'm not going to ask for it. And I'll just go without because it's just not going to be as good. So, yeah, yeah I, I totally do that. And I, you can you, this carries through with a lot of things. Public apologies for offensive uh, sayings. I mean, come on. That's this is exactly that. You 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 were forced to give the apology, so we know it's not fucking true. <laughs> so why are you even giving it? <laughs> like, who are you it, fooling? It's this, yeah, it's the sorry I'm caught apology. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, I'm sorry you were offended by the way I communicate. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry I took pictures of my penis and sent them to a girl. That was wrong <laughs> and inappropriate. Like, you know what? I would have voted for you if you didn't apologize. Just just on that alone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you weren't running for anything I could have voted for, but, you know, whatever. I would have done mm -hmm. it anyway. <laughs> I would have did a mail-in mail -in ballot. All right. Um, yeah, let's do another one of these. You got another one? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, you got a whole bunch uh, of them, actually. But... Yeah, there's like three pages of them. One, Jeez. two, three. Yeah. This is something I used to say to my ex-boyfriend a lot. Uh, how do I know where I stand if I'm following your lead? I like that. I like that little rule. Or romance, but to what end? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Not enough romance in this relationship. Like romance, <laughs> to what end? It's like you have to stop reading that in the shrug. <laughs> Which leads me to another one. Replace the word money with love in Francisco Deconia's money speech and Atlas shrugged relationships operate the same way as business deals. I did that once and I'm like, oh my God, look at that. My entire romantic philosophy right there. <laughs> <laughs> you stole it from Ayn Rand. Nice. And what isn't taken from Ayn Rand these days? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's I don't even, there's no reference there. I, I have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is kind of in the, in the, in the, uh, public sphere now with uh, the Republican candidates. So it's relevant. All right. Well, that's great. Do you want to, do you want to announce the winner here? Sure. All right. I'll do a little Me. drum roll. <laughs> it is Sarah Josephine. 
Sarah Josephine. Nice. I know her. Congratulations. Well, uh, congratulations, Sarah. You're going to be getting a copy of Den Arden's Milton Eroticism, brand new first edition available, and uh, it's going to be signed and personalized. So that's pretty awesome. Hell yeah. Well, again, thank you everyone for sending in your acts of depravity or your quirky comments about this contest. It was a lot of fun. So can I ask you a quick question about this, Aden? Sure, as long as I get to say that they've officially turned the Titanic into my wet dream. <laughs> and there are some sick fucks out there, let me tell you. When, when, when you're about to die, it seems sexuality no longer matters. Because everybody was like, hey, if it's a hole, I'll fuck it. Like, well, why can't you do that during your life? But, you know, whatever, okay. Yeah, why do you have to wait until you're going to die? I guess there's something about freezing water in the middle of the Atlantic that turns everybody into a bisexual. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right, let's hear your question. What's up? Okay, so here's my question. Um, what was this process like? The contest, uh, the delayed release you know, from the contest uh, for this special important date. Uh, what was that process like for you? Exhausting. <laughs> was there a lot of nerves or were you were you let down at all i mean what was the um no i think i managed my expectations fairly well um it was uh i'm i'm impatient so i'm like can't can't this just be over with can i just you know <laughs> have have the final copy of my book because i'm tired of looking at the test copy yeah yeah <laughs> i'm like can't can i just you know enjoy this for a minute no no, no I, can't. <laughs> I have more work to do oh yeah and Darren and darren diaz i was making fun of me he's like ah look at you promo bitching like, shut, shut the fuck up <laughs> he's like welcome to my world I'm like shut up <laughs> see why you're crabby every time you put on an album <laughs> <laughs> it's true there's a lot of work that goes into i think more work than people expect like we're, more we're, than what I expected. Yeah. And you're not done yet, right? I mean, you do have a lot more to go through. Oh, this, the, I, something tells me this won't be done until, you know, the end of the year. Yeah. But so, that's good. You know, the push and then the marketing and then everything else that's going to come up with this, uh, with this little smut peddling of mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, yeah, we are, the march is far from over. Hell yeah. We're going to be goose-stepping uh, into the later year. And, you know, just to tease, there may be other developments about the book, right? So keep your ears peeled and your, your eyes open? Or is that backwards? <laughs> um, That's right. That's wrong. It, it works. Yeah, it works. I. You know. uh, Check out facebook.com slash militant eroticism for all details concerning the book and the podcast and everything. Um, great episode, man. I loved hearing uh, those little uh, excerpts from the book. When I ran across those, um, I, I was I was pleasantly surprised because it isn't something that you see very often. Uh, just little musings. And I feel, I don't know, I, I don't feel like I'm smart enough to come up with <laughs> a three pages of uh you know uh, original thought 
in the form of, of little new musings. I, I feel like I got to kind of rant and, and rave without actual points. So it was nice seeing that there, there's someone that could actually formulate uh, interesting phrases uh, that, that have meaning and depth. Oh, well, I'm, I'm sure you could come up with a bunch of little quotables. You know, like, um, like um, my, uh, what do you say about your penis? <laughs> I could oh, do your, your transforming penis. Yeah, I could do some some stuff about my cock. It's but really it... easy. <laughs> <laughs> your cock is really easy to talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's true. It's true. Um, all right. Well, uh, thank you again. And this is a jam-packed episode, so I'm glad that we were still able to get a Milton and Ross as a men right hot on the heels of the Valpurgis Noct Satanic Witch episode, which is going to be fantastic. Aden, it is always fantastic. Thank you so much for uh, for this episode. And uh, until we can chat again, hail Satan, man. Hail Satan. Welcome to another Old Nick Peep Show, the only segment that delivers beautiful women, masculine men, and intriguing information on all things Old Nick. Joining us, as always, is the very first Old Nick chick, the very beautiful witch, Marilyn Mansfield. How are you? I am very well, thank you. How are you? I'm feeling pretty goddamn lucky, to be quite honest. I got you all to myself tonight. Yeah, I'm like a, <laughs> I don't know, a bachelorette tonight. <laughs> Zoff oh, is fantastic. not joining us, so it's just... Me, it's the Marilyn Mansfield Peep Show Hour. <laughs> well, not an that hour, but you know. Sounds what I mean. fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> that would be awesome. All right. Well, um, of course, you are a representative of Old Nick Magazine. We're in Old Nick's mm -hmm. Peep Show. What's happening over at Old Nick? Well, we got some um, great stuff in the works, as always, with the spring issue. And um, there's going to be, you know, Maybe a little surprise or two um, coming out that I cannot talk about. <laughs> <laughs> tease. I am a tease. I am a tease. Well, that's that's what this segment is all about. A little bit of a peep, and then you're on your way. Um, yeah, well, this, this issue, this <laughs> issue is like wearing like a a, a button-up sweater, and one button just happens to get loose, you know. <laughs> Oh yeah. See, I'm a little more immature about it. Where I, I think it's a little bit more like a carny tent flap to a burlesque show, and I'm too young to get in. I can just sort of <laughs> peek through the worn holes in the outer <laughs> outside until I get shooed away. Don't worry, I'll bring you in, no matter how old you are. Oh yeah. All right. Um, I, I've always been fascinated with the different types of content you have in Old Nick, and really at its core of any gentleman's magazine. I think of the ladies, ironically, a gentleman's magazine is all about the ladies. So we, we've spoken in the past about, and we've spoken to you about your modeling past, but I thought maybe we could do something a little bit more, um, a little more open-ended, uh, maybe a bit of a tips and tricks type discussion. Um, what, I, I know that uh, Magister Johnson has uh, absolute say over uh, all submissions, whether they are uh, models or content. But 
what are some of the things that uh, he and you guys, uh, you and your man, uh, Willock Zothamog, look for for potential models? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the thing is, a lot of uh, the models um, and, and potential models, me and Zoth um, find, we we will bring to uh, Magister Johnson, you know, and ultimately it's up to him. But, you know, um, we do give our input on who we think would, would be suitable for the magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it the magazine does have a... Um, a taste, if you will. Um, you know, even though there's different, uh, there's a lot of diversity, uh, with the models, you know, we've mm-hmm. had pinup models, um, goth models, you know, um, all, all different types of, of, um, gals, you know, bigger girls and, uh, smaller girls and, and, you know, just something for everybody. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, the, the thing is that, um, it's not, it's not only about the model, it's about the photo shoot itself, you know, because obviously this is a magazine. Mm-hmm. So the, um, end result needs to look good. You know, a lot of girls write to me and, and ask like, um, tips on how to, you know, do a, a photo shoot that would be acceptable or, you know, um, accepted when they submit it, you know, and, um, I try, you know, I always try and give, um, I'm very generous in that, in that, uh, way. I always try and give, you know, my best advice I can. Um, what I would say is, you know, first of all, you have to be confident, you know, if, if you're uncomfortable in any way, it's going to show in the photographs, Hmm. you know, and, and that's something that, you know, old Nick likes confident women, you know, um, I'm sure you could see that in the, in yeah. the yeah, you know, <laughs> it, you know, we want confident, confident women that are comfortable in their own skin. So that's really important. So whatever you decide to, I would, I would say to potential models who are looking to submit for the magazine, whatever you decide to submit, make sure the photos represent you in the best, you know, confident, um, uh, you know, way you could be shown, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, if that makes sense, because if you're yeah, uncomfortable absolutely. about being topless or anything like that, you know, it's going to show in your face and you know, that's that just, it doesn't work for this magazine might work for other magazines, but for this magazine, we want confidence. We want, you know, charisma. We want, you know, um, alluring ladies, you know? Yeah. So that, that's a big thing. Yeah. I imagine it would be, you know, it Old Nick magazine, in my opinion, really isn't the bucket list magazine. Meaning, if you are a, a young woman who just wants to say, "I've been in a uh, gentleman's magazine," and you're just going to take a picture that you think that the viewing audience would want, or you think that the editor is going to want, I don't really think this is the magazine for you. There's a lot of other places that you could submit to. I mean, because there is a a refined palette to what is accepted. And just like you're speaking to the confidence and how the editors and, and you all can see it when it's there on the other end of it, on the viewing side, me, I can absolutely tell as well. And there is nothing more unattractive than uh, a woman without any 
sense of self uh, without any uh, individual strength. I mean, that's really, you know, you think of what a strong witch is, what an alluring woman is, not a girl, a woman, and it right. is power. And so it just makes perfect sense. Um, do you think, I mean, f let's just say for you in general, um, is was it hard for you to find uh, the style that you felt comfortable in? I mean, you've done a number of shoots where mm -hmm. you have changed it up a little bit, uh, costumes and stuff, um, dressing up as other people, but you've also done yourself very, very clearly. Is it difficult for you to, to switch between those? No, you know, every, every shoot that I have done, I felt that it has, you know, represented who I am, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which is why I like working with, I've always liked working with, uh, independent photographers, you know, cause uh, even like modeling clothing or whatever for, um, designers, it's, it's great, but you know, obviously, uh, you know, in a way I'm kind of like a doll, you know, and they're dressing me, yeah. but for like for stuff for old Nick and things like that, I mean, it's always been, that's me. That's a hundred percent me. You know, it's like a goth pinup, you know, um, you know, just w w fetishy, whatever, whatever that day, whatever mood should strike, you know, and I'm a hundred percent comfortable. I've done shoots where, you know, I'm wearing leather corset and rope. I feel comfortable with that, you know, but someone um, might not feel as comfortable. That's fine. But so, the, the, you know, the main thing is I've always been attracted to more of a darker um, you know, aesthetic for myself. Um, even with the pinup stuff, it's always very, I might look totally pinup, but my face is, you know, has a little bit, uh, a little bit of a demonic touch in there, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So for me, that works for me, you know? Um, yeah. but there's total confidence and, and, and comfort in, in the shoots. And I think that's what, when you look into that camera, if if you look anything but confident, it's going to show, yeah. you know, and you, you want people to, to see you as, wow, this woman knows who she is, what she is, and she's loves herself. That's what you want to show. And like you said, old Nick is very, you know, strong. It gives off a very strong and powerful um, um, presence to it with everything, with the articles, with the photos and everything. So that's something that's extremely important. I feel personally yeah. to the magazine. So when, um, when people are submitting, uh, when women are submitting photos for consideration, are those, are they submitting them as in, this is a test shot. Do you like what you see? And I'll shoot more. Or is it, this is a final series and, you know, consider these for entry. You know, uh, what I would suggest is when I said, uh, my photos in the beginning, they were professional shots, mm -hmm. you know, um, don't send, you know, just any selfies or anything like that. You know, if you want to impress somebody, you know, um, you know, the first impression, you know, is the best thing. So submit your best, you know, mm -hmm. do, if you have professional photos, send them and then you work with, with, um, Bob or, you know, and see what you want to do for the old Nick shoot, you know, because, um, old Nick usually requires, um, a separate shoot, but 
put your best foot forward, you know, and send send your best. Make yeah. a nice impression, you know, because if you send some cell phone pictures or whatever, it's really, you know, it's going to go on the back burner. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, and and obviously, if you've been modeling, you have professional photos. So, you know, that's what I would suggest. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it is important. I mean, and, and this crosses, I think, every professional boundary. Whenever you're um, presenting to anyone for anything, whether it's a job or an opportunity, you always want to have your best represented. I think it's hard for some people who, who maybe are starting out and they don't necessarily have the eye for what really mm-hmm. is high quality enough. Um you know, for for stuff for for people like that that are maybe not experienced models, but are interested in trying to break through, maybe they feel like they have what it takes. Uh, you know, is old Nick w- willing to look at what they have and give them pointers? I'm sure about that. You know, but like, sort of, you're posing for a gentleman's magazine, just like your resume. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, anything that is low quality obviously um you know there there are great resources like model mayhem and things like that which allow um um, unsigned models or even signed models to um network with other photographers and do things like trade for print or whatever so the photographer is getting photos and you're posing for him and getting photos in return that you can use for yourself you know what i mean so it's like you know i mean I, I've done that since, you know, the beginning. So, I mean, you know, um, but, you know, just just make it really show your personality, show who you are, have a nice background, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, all my shoots for old Nick were carefully thought out, you know, and um, worked on with several people with the sets and everything, even though it was mostly my um, idea, my ideas for the set and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, even if it was just in my own home, I made it, you know, everything was exactly how I wanted it in that one shot, you know? So it's like, you know, I mean, like I explained to you before, um, my first shoot for old Nick was about nine hours, you know? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, you know, you have to, and every little detail was just so, you know, so, I mean, you have to put some effort into it and send really good pictures for you to be considered. So that's very important. And then, you know, the, the shoot, you know, we, we look at the type of girl you are, the model, um, and, and your style and everything. And then ideas come after that for, you know, a full on shoot for old Nick, you know? So, and that's who, you know, gets in. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think that's, that's really good advice. Um, you know, and to sort of try to sum it up here as we're, we're, um, ending this discussion, you know, be yourself, put your best quality work out there for consideration and pay attention to detail. I've done hundreds of photo shoots with many different clients in mind and it's all about the details. A hair out of place, a shoelace out of place. I don't know why you would have shoelaces in these, but just <laughs> little details like that, a tag flipped up or right. or a, a strap flipped over. You want it to be perfect so you know like you were mentioning your first first photo shoot was like nine hours you have yeah. to go into these expecting to take an afternoon and just 
get the best out there. And that's why it's important not only to have a professional photographer and quality equipment, but you have to, you know, even have someone else there just to have that third eye to make sure the set is perfect. There's no little dust bunnies anywhere to make sure your setup perfect, your hair is flowing perfectly as it should, just to make sure you have as many eyes as possible on that particular shoot so that you can get the best quality out of it. Because I've done, <laughs> I've done shoots where you think everything's great and then you look at the photo or the film afterward and you're just kicking yourself knowing <laughs> that you have to go back and redo it because you missed one little thing. And, you know, just doing it in post isn't always good enough, like removing it uh, through digital editing. Sometimes it just has to be done right the first time. So take your time, people, and submit your best work. I think that's really great advice. Thank you so much. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying you have to do a nine-hour shoot to submit, but, yeah, you yeah. know, submit submit a few good photos that we can, you know, um, see you clearly and, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're looking your best. You know, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, we'll take it from there, you know. So that's that's the advice that I would give as a model and, you know, um, promoter for old Nick. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's give the people uh, the contact information for that. Where could they submit their best work to? Um, you can submit your work to info at oldnickmagazine.com. Um, all the social media links and everything, um, Zoth just updated it two weeks ago, I think, uh, right. is can be found on oldnickmagazine.com, of course. And um, you can follow me personally on Twitter at oldnickchick. And um, yeah, I mean, we're on Facebook and everything. So everything's on the site. And, you know, um, we're always looking for new models. So just don't be afraid. That's all I'm mm -hmm. going to say. Do not be afraid. You know, hope I didn't scare anyone. But <laughs> just, you know, just, you know, make take a nice if you're going to submit photos, make sure they're, you know, there's something that you would be proud of. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. No, I dig it. Well, thank you so much, Marilyn, for joining us. Uh, it, it's always really fantastic to hear from you. Uh, until we can chat again, hail Satan. Hail Satan. That's going to do it for another show, people. I hope you enjoyed it. It was a long one, and I appreciate you guys sticking through it. We would love to hear from you. Visit website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let us know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. You can visit the Satanet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 cents and get updated on weekly topics. You can download the show Mondays via the RSS feed at 9centspodcast.com. We're also on Last.fm, Stitcher, and YouTube, so look for us there. If you do subscribe via iTunes or you get us through Stitcher, give us a rating, give us a comment. We really appreciate it. It helps us rise to the top. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I think it's important for people to hear what contributors like Wichzaftik have to say. It is much more meaningful than anything else that's out there right now. And I mean that. <laughs> Uh, if you would like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And the only way we're going to continue doing this is via your interaction. Share nine cents, comment uh, on the episodes, on our random posts. There's a lot of content that we put together and we put out for you. So please reciprocate. And uh, 
Once again, thank you for joining me. As always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell, being joined by... Which Zaptic. The beautiful Witch Zaptic. You look lovely, by the way. I didn't say that earlier. Why, thank you so much. <laughs> and until <laughs> next time, hail Satan! Hail Satan!